welcome to Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Nick Salvato, and I'll be moderating and participating in this episode on aesthetics. We're very thankful to be a part of the Acamedia podcast, sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started last summer under the title Talking Television in a Time of Pandemic inspired by the desire to explore television's role in mediating the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and of anti-Black violence. In the light of these and other ongoing crises, a new season of Talking Television started this past fall. We continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about how television, across all of its forms, from network and cable to streaming and on live TV, and how television studies, from work on production to text to reception, may best speak to these peculiar and surreal times. Thus far in our latest installments of the series, we've tackled the topics of politics, tactics, economics, and optics. This episode, as I said, will be focused on aesthetics. We'll explore questions regarding television's form and the implications of that form and of our attention to it. How should we think about the relationships between TV as art and as commerce, between television aesthetics and politics, or between televisual texts and contexts, especially during this period of pandemic viewing? In an era of media proliferation, yet also consolidation, and during a time in which troubling questions regarding the politics of representation and devaluing or devaluing certain representations have urgently arisen. What changes have emerged in television's representational form, style, and aesthetics and how should we assess these changes? How have new forms of TV or adjacent media like online video impacted our thoughts about the media? Do these forms challenge existing hierarchies of cultural value, maybe then challenging social hierarchies as well, and with what effects? And how should we as television scholars and media educators best deal with these issues? These questions and more are all things we will discuss today with our great group of participants. We have joining us Josie Torres-Barth, Assistant Teaching Professor of Film Studies in the Department of English at North Carolina State University. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks, Josie. Welcome. Elena Levine, Professor of Media, Cinema, and Digital Studies in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Hi, great to be here. Great to have you here, Elena. Yael Levy, Postdoctoral Fellow of Screen Cultures at Northwestern University. Hi, happy to be here. Happy to have you, Yael. Jason Mattel, Professor and Chair of Film and Media Culture and American Studies at Middlebury College. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Great to have you. Welcome, Jason. Isabel Pinedo, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at Hunter College, CUNY. Hi, it's good to be here. Good to have you, Isabel. And again, I'm Nick Salvato, Professor and Chair of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. Okay, let's get started. There's been a great deal of interest in the cultural and political contexts impacting television during this pandemic and politically volatile era. Why, along with attention to these contexts, is it equally important to analyze television's textuality and aesthetics? Or isn't it? Isabel here. I think it's equally important. Um, I believe in triangulating different methods. So looking at aesthetic strategies or other types of close reading is not mutually exclusive from also doing distance readings, right? Looking at historical context, looking at the larger production culture, looking at the racial and gendered compositions of creative teams. So all these factors, I think, come into play. 
also, when I look at aesthetic strategies, I look at it more out of a sociological perspective. So I'm more interested in how form affects the viewing experience, um, you know, whether something is evoking a sense of fetishism or a more, uh, you know, sort of greater respect for subjectivity. All those things affect how we interpret material. So I, I see them going, all these different methods going hand in hand. And I don't think you can disconnect politics from aesthetics. I see people nodding vigorously as I am doing as well. I, I am totally with you on form as one of the registers in which things like politics lodge and therefore requiring our attention. Yael? Yeah, I agree with Isabel completely. And I think that, as, as she said, as, as many of my esteemed peers in this roundtable have shown, that form and aesthetics can many times be uh, indicative of how politics or culture or morality even are kind of woven into the text. And moreover, I think that sometimes even uh, analyzing aesthetics and form could go against the uh, direct message of the text. I often think about the examples of how uh, melodrama was analyzed in terms of the way that stylistic excess and aesthetic formation in the mise-en-scene kind of sometimes were uh, expressive of what couldn't be expressed directly in dialogue. And I think that that's the interesting thing about aesthetics and form, that sometimes it can say something that we can't see directly in the text or in the dialogue. And I think that it may be a gateway to kind of looking at the cracks in television form and television seriality and the way that television as, as a medium is constructed that I think can, can have new meanings that we don't necessarily see. I have, a, I have another term I'd like to add to the conversation. I think that a big part of my interest in, um, in form, which I think I tend to prefer to aesthetics, is in really the question of viewer address. So who is a program addressing? How are they addressing that viewer? Who does the program think they are speaking to? Who do they think is left out of that particular address? And I think especially also what is the, especially talking about television, what is the viewer's relationship to the space where they are consuming, uh, which is quite frequently the home, but perhaps in some interesting ways that are, that are especially complicated right now as we're all having sort of new relationships uh, to our experience of that space. Yeah, building off of what Josie just said, this is Jason, and I, I think that for me, my main interest in form is what it tells us about pleasure and practice. And that's primarily at the sort of viewer, consumer end. Um, although I think that the producer end is probably something also to explore there. Um, but I think I'm interested in how television tells stories, for instance, but not just in a black box where it's telling stories to itself, right? Like I'm curious who it's telling stories to and how people engage with those stories and why. And I think that the answers to those questions are political, but they're also aesthetic slash formal slash tied to textuality. So I think that it's important to draw those linkages and to have close effective, detailed analysis of form allows us to understand those pleasures and practices much better. This is Elena. I agree with 
everyone, obviously. Um, I also think that we would be, uh, you know, liars in the, everything that we teach and tell our students about paying attention to aesthetics. And by that, I would mean form, visual, sound, narrative form, you know, basically all of the ways in which television communicates to us, because that is how we know or understand what the meanings are. Uh, so, I mean, everyone has basically made this point already, but I think a time of crisis, just like any other time, the way to understand the role of television, or at least one important way, would be to understand the way it's telling us the stories that it's telling us. And the way you see that is through analyses of form and style. This is Nick again. I just want to underscore that I really appreciate the myriad ways in which you're all expressing the point, essentially, that we're not interested as close readers when we are close readers in doing autotelic or closed readings. These readings precisely open up onto reception, pleasure, politics, practice, and so forth. With that in mind and bearing in mind also what Elena just said about thinking through these questions in a time of pandemic and related crises, I want to ask what you see happening formally that's maybe new or different or interesting in the television of the last year plus. Where do we need to look to pay attention to new shifts or surprises in form and how and why? Isabel here. I found myself watching a variety of different shows that have been produced um, since COVID and lockdown restrictions were imposed. And I found some of them very pleasurable and some of them horrible to watch. And so I thought about, you know, what was the difference? So for example, the one I enjoyed the most was Connecting. And part of the reason for that is that they use establishing shots, including the establishing COVID as a condition of life. Uh, but also, they aren't only shown in Zoom frame, which gets to be very claustrophobic in some instances, but shown at home or shown in flashback, uh, so that we get some relief from the intensity of the closeness. Um, and they do something really interesting when they alternate between spotlight speaker and split screen but when they do the split screen in different combinations they use different colors for different combinations of people and so it's almost like cross-cutting sometimes spotlight split screen spotlight right and it's also feels more dynamic because if it's a if it's a spotlight viewer it's a black frame like we're seeing in a regular zoom experience but if it's a split screen it's colored in a way that i don't actually know how to do my settings for zoom and and so it just gives the picture more vitality and it's also very funny so they i sort of think of this as one of the shows that scales down the pandemic so that we experience it through them in the ways that we do to cope with the pandemic, right? We don't always look at the big picture because we would go nuts looking at the big picture all the time. And then the opposite would be something like coastal elites, where it's a monologue, it's intense, the subject matter is consistently difficult to deal with. And I think they break the fourth wall more inconsistently than a lot of other Zoom instances. And I can't bear it. It's one of the things I find really uncomfortable about theater, when the actors look back at you. Um, and, and so it doesn't allow me to uh, somehow feel safe in that environment. And I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to be keeping those kinds of formats. I think they're, they're really temporary, and at least that's my hope. This is Elena. I think that the examples you're talking about, Isabel, are really interesting because they're sort of one of these fluke moments, right, in television history where we're seeing these really bizarre stylistic choices 
that um, are very specific to our moment and are going to be great historical artifacts as a result. I have not been able to bring myself to watch any of those things um, <laughs> because, you know, life is already happening in too many little boxes for my taste. And what I've found really interesting, though, are whether a, whether COVID exists or doesn't exist in a narrative world um, since shows have come back. Of course, I mean, a big factor of this time is the, you know, the deficit of, of productions that we had for a while where we had the backlog of stuff that had been produced pre-COVID and that ran out, started to run out. And we, you know, we've had a very thin TV world, at least in terms of the conventional TV season structure has gone. Um, and so I wasn't sure when some of my favorite shows came back, like Grey's Anatomy and This Is Us, and they were taking place in COVID world, if I was going to want to deal with it. Um, but I'm a you know, staunch loyalist with my TV shows. And so I was like, I got to do it. I have to be there. Um, and I find some of it easier to take than others. But it's quite interesting, the choices that get made. I don't know if others have been watching those shows. Those are just two that I watched um, in Station 19, which is the Grey's spinoff, that co where COVID does exist compared to like General Hospital, which of course I also watch where COVID does not exist, which is quite nice. Like that's probably the most pleasant viewing experience because it's just like, and they're doing it, even though there's all kinds of COVID protocols on set in terms of how they're shooting, it doesn't look any different to me. And it's, it's very comforting. But the worlds of these primetime shows where COVID exists are, you know, the choices they're making are quite interesting. And I have, you know, we can talk more about specifics of that. And there are probably some other examples of shows I don't know. Gail? I think I also kind of look at these shows in terms of whether they in integrate COVID into the plot points or not. And also, the, I think the, the most uh, vivid examples are Grey's Anatomy or This Is Us and these melodramatic tones that kind of work well with all these, uh, with, with the tragedies and not only COVID itself, but also the repercussions in terms of economic crises and racial crises. But I think that one of the most interesting examples are those that kind of don't integrate COVID into, into the plot and where, again, as, as we've talked about earlier, the kind of the, the aesthetics and the form and the styling affect the way that the narrative is constructed. And I'm thinking specifically about, for example, The Connors, though it's, it's a sitcom and it does kind of take the plot points of COVID into the, into the narrative. But then I think it constantly shifts between escapism and relevance because it uses not only uh, the sitcom form for humor or kind of lighter tones, but it also, I think, in terms of space, it really divides uh, the public space and the workspace from the home. And I think that one of the places where it, it's expressed the most is the styling, not only because you see masks and social distancing at the workplace, but it's also, it, it usually has like more grayish tones and different pacing. And the home is all about the nostalgia. I mean, they hardly touch the, the 80s nostalgia with the couch and that Afghan. And of course, the, the mise-en-scene is more crowded and the pacing is different. And I think that it really plays interestingly between being timely and being escapist. And I think Ilana talked about General Hospital, but I think if the Connors is kind of ambivalent in the way that it wants to incorporate COVID, but then wants to kind of keep it aside at the same time. I was thinking about genres that 
tried to kind of dismiss all COVID narratives as, for example, soap operas. But again, as, as Alana said, protocols kind of forced them to relate to COVID in different ways. So we have all these the kissing mannequins and kissing through partitions. And um, I, I don't watch soaps as much, but Alana said that it doesn't uh, affect her experience in watching. But I think that some viewers do kind of notice these protocols going into the text, though I'm guessing it does affect viewership in some sense. And the last example that I wanted to address was uh, the award shows that also kind of tried to be escapist and all about the glamour and the public space, but then they inevitably had to incorporate all these stars that we're used to seeing in gowns at their domestic space, sometimes not dressed very glamorously. And so again, kind of the, the timely found its way into the escapist. So I think the uh, shows or the genres that try not to address COVID directly are the ones in which aesthetics and form kind of force it into the frame without without them wanting to. But I think it, it really affects the experience, uh, the way that we consume these texts and the way they're constructed. And, and they really say something about kind of this tense between the domestic and the public, the way that we see these uh, and consume these texts. Josie? Yeah, somewhat related to something that Yael was just saying, but in another sense, in a completely different vein. Um, my main TV viewing habit during quarantine has been basically all of the different ele elements of the drag race industrial complex, uh, which is really, I think, so interesting. The, way that the different ways that they have dealt with this question in the various forms of the show. Um, because I think the thing that's so interesting about that show is that it's really about how to create community through performance. Um, and so over the past year, they've dealt with that a couple of different ways, where the season finale of the last season basically happened on Zoom, uh, which is very strange and raises a lot of the similar issues that we've been talking about, about uh, what it's like to get dressed up and do drag basically in your basement with a backdrop and how different that experience is when they're lip syncing in the finale from their various apartments uh, when it's usually such a big spectacle, right? So that's one way that they've dealt with it. This most recent season, they had an entire episode that was basically a, a very special episode about how COVID affected us on the show. Uh, and they really milked it for a lot of drama in a way that is a, it's just a very different way of approaching it. And then, um, so in the, the UK season where they had to, I believe they went into lockdown during the filming of the most recent season, they actually had to leave for, I think, several months and come back. And as they come back, they keep commenting on how, uh, oh, some of these girls really used their time off to step up their game, basically. So they're constantly referring to it um, and actually, one of the queens got COVID and was not able to continue with that season. But I think it's really interesting to think about how much of that translates and how much it becomes part of uh, sort of the, the constraints of, of the competition. Yeah, so uh, several queens definitely spent their time off uh, getting some enhancements, I think, <laughs> that, that helped them ultimately. Uh, if we're talking about aesthetics, right, that if it's a whole show that is about producing yourself sort of as a visual, it's a really, I think, interesting case. 
can I just clarify that um, there's only one soap opera using mannequins? Um, that's the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> the other soaps are not using mannequins. They just, oh, I mean, for I, the clarification. I only watch General Hospital regularly, but they just stopped kissing. And like they use techniques that are like what the 60s soaps used, where like they show the couple kind of getting closer and closer. And then there's like a slow pan away. And that's what it was like in the 60s. They did barely showed you anything. And it's kind of lovely um, and I'm sort of enjoying it. And there's nothing else. No, I mean, I watched Bold and Beautiful in the early weeks when it first came back and they had the actors standing so far apart from each other. And there's, it's not like that on General Hospital. And I don't know if there's just different choices about how they're running their COVID protocols or whatever, but it's very important that we not just assume all soaps are the same. So I was going to say no, that. No, I, I was going to say, I, I think the dramas are doing something very similar to what Yale was describing with the Connors in that, like, there's different spaces where people wear masks or don't wear masks. And it feels like real life, you know, um, like, I find This Is Us, like, incredibly comforting in some ways, because in, in of course, it's about a family. And so, oh, the family is, t- when, when the members of the family are together, they're not masked and things seem, quote unquote, normal. And then the, when they're out in public, they are masked. And so it's just it just feels more like our experiences. And of course, because so much of the story is about the families, a lot of it does take place in private spaces. And so that helps as well aesthetically. I uh, I just wanted to add, again, going back to what Elena said about uh, the dramas, I watch Grey's Anatomy and I think that the way that the domestic sphere is comforting in the dramas kind of really goes against how it's a, a signifier of the crisis in award shows or in talk shows. So I think that's also a, a kind of interesting tension. But thanks for clarifying the, the differences between the soaps. But because as you say, I think it does matter how dominant are the different production techniques in terms of how they affect suspension of disbelief or kind of identification with the characters. So, yeah, I think I think that's also kind of an interesting tension. So uh, I wanted to jump in. This is Jason. Um, there, you know, for me, at least personally, I've been pretty much unable to watch any fictional program that was produced post-COVID, mostly because I can't stop thinking about how did they do this and, you know, just worrying about everyone. Um, it's the operational so distraction. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but it's not the type that I want. So it's it's just distracting. So I've given up on and I've done a lot. Of, you know, the fictional TV that I'm watching is backlog catching up with shows that I haven't watched previously because there's way too much TV for any of us to consume. But in terms of the newer productions, the I think that the things that I have watched more of are talk shows. And I think that it's really fascinating the ways in which all the different talk shows have adjusted in a variety of ways to how are we going to solve these problems and what are the aesthetic norms we're going to use in terms of the spaces that we're using, the role of laughter or not. I think that it would be really fascinating to teach this, you know, once we're kind of out of the woods to be able to show how different talk shows did it. And it really, it's kind of a case study to break down all the different elements that are in place with the various multi-camera sets and the role of audiences and the role of green screens or, you know, Zoom space, all sorts of things, right? So I think that's been really interesting. And the other thing for me, at least, is that the talk show 
blurs much more continuously into online video spaces where a lot of what we're watching is, you know, watching John Oliver or Stephen Colbert on YouTube and then turning over and watching Sarah Cooper on TikTok. And sort of the, those, these are all sort of blurring into each other in ways that feel more of the pandemic for me than fictional TV that is trying to either pretend a pre-COVID world or fictionalize COVID, which again, I'm just not ready for. I want to, this is Nick again. Um, I just want to appreciate the really rich range of genres that you've all addressed in your comments from sitcoms and daytime or primetime serialized melodramas to talk shows, to award shows, to reality competition series. And I want to add one more genre to the mix. And that is the classic game show where there is not as much mention of the pandemic, if there is any at all, as in all of these other instances, but the social distancing is registered when, for instance, contestants from the dueling families and family feud have to stand farther apart from each other than usual and can't shake hands. And I have this thought that, well, I keep wondering about what that kind of episode is going to look like when it becomes part of um, a package for an on-demand platform or is rerun in syndication. I, I have this hunch that there will be a kind of paradoxical way in which precisely because the effects formally are less dramatic and drastic, when they sit next to other episodes of Family Feud, they might actually make us gasp. <laughs> I wanted to also um, circle back to something that Jason was bringing up, which is about the staggering output of television content in the last several years and the backlog that we all have. I'd love to hear, particularly in formal or aesthetic terms, given the focus of today's conversations, what you're revisiting and catching up on and why those are the things to which you're gravitating during this time. Well, my big project, um, I'm rewatching Lost with my 15-year-old son um, who has not watched it. Um, and it's, I mean, I've written a lot about Lost. I was involved in the fan community. So it's just fascinating for me to, to rewatch it, but then to also watch it with someone who, you know, it's new to. But Lost was a show that for me was so much rooted in the weekly and seasonal rollout and the gap between episodes and theorizing and going on the wiki and doing the alternate reality games and things like that. So when my son says, let's watch three episodes tonight, that's such a different experience. And it's really just driving home the ways in which there's a huge generation gap that we are all going to, we are already facing with students. It's going to become even more significant in terms of just what television viewing means and how things like schedule and seasons matter or don't matter as the case may be. Um, Lost still for me holds up as an experience and he's really enjoying it, but it's definitely a, a totally different experience temporally and narratively. Uh, Isabel here. I think I'm one of the few people I know who have not watched anything out of nostalgia at all. <laughs> I, but I have gravitated towards good world shows like that I never saw before, like The Good Place and Schitt's Creek. And so my only translation of nostalgia was to watch Schitt's Creek three times all the way through because it just brought <laughs> so much joy to my life. And it got me through the horribleness of the election that I just kept going back to it. Um, but I haven't wanted to revisit. And I've, I've actually felt myself um, recoil from Casa de Papel or something when it gets really violent, because I know that people can get killed in that show. And I, I just couldn't deal with the sense of loss. So The Queen's Gambit, yes, but 
Tiger King a little too much weirdness for me. Uh, so those things made me back off. I'm always happy to talk about old TV. Uh, this is Elena. Well, we, Michael and I, Michael Newman and I, my partner watched all of uh, St. Elsewhere earlier in the pandemic, oh. six seasons. And I had seen St. Elsewhere through, I think twice before an original run and then watched it like in the nineties on reruns. And Mike didn't think he'd seen some of the early seasons before. Anyways, that was a really interesting exercise in terms of watching this show that we think of as being so um, foundational to shifts in storytelling. And in some ways it is, and in some ways it's a very conventional network era drama with a lot of, you know, there's more serialization as it goes on if we're talking about aesthetics. There's also some really problematic representational politics that you see today that you didn't, I didn't for one, didn't see earlier, gender politics, racial politics, those kinds of things. And sticking with the MTM theme, um, now we're watching the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is delightful, except, you know, we're in season five and I think that, I think it might jump the shark after Rhoda leaves, things go downhill and it's sort of painful for me. But it's, it is a, I mean, at least the first four seasons are, I think, incredibly instructive in terms of how effective character comedy can be with a nearly 50 year gap. It still works super well for me, at least. But the problem is Rhoda is not available. Like there's really crappy DVDs of Rhoda and it's available on YouTube and the transfer of Mary Tyler Moore, which is on Hulu is very nice. And so we're having this like, continuing aesthetic debate about whether we can accept watching Rhoda in the crappy forms that we have access to. But we love Rhoda so much that we, <laughs> I want to, cause I just want Rhoda. It Mike's a little bit more, he wants the better image. So it's a, it's a little bit of a family struggle at the moment, but you know, there's definitely these aesthetic experiences of, you know, in this case, quite old TV that are in many cases, very pleasurable, but you know, you do some differences do stand out. Like when you have the image quality of a standard definition show that hasn't been remastered. This is Josie. I actually have something of the opposite problem where my partner can't watch anything in HD because it's too realistic and he finds it really hard to, uh, to, descend, to suspend his disbelief when he's able to see all of these details and all of these pores in people's skin and especially things that are maybe set in an earlier time period. Um, so that actually really ends up limiting the things that we can watch together a lot of the time in a, in a way that perhaps was not what they had intended when they decided they were going to shoot that in HD, right? This is Yael. I want to take up everything that was said, and I think also in previous episodes of this uh, podcast that I'm, I'm also very much drawn to kind of more comforting TV. And I think specifically also in terms of aesthetics, I just like to watch sitcoms, whatever is on, I just like the the way that they're paced and the way that they're seen and the aesthetics of, of the studio and the multicam and the bright colors and the way that whatever problems occur, they kind of resolve themselves by the half hour. And I think that there's something comforting in that, the form of the sitcom that I, that I just like to have on in the background 
of course, other than the, the shows that I'm working on. So that's usually what I have on in the background. I want to jump in and respond to your point, Yael, because I find not only the cathartic experience of laughter, right, helps break whatever the cumulative daily tension is, but also um, something that Netta Alexandra was talking about at the SCMS, right, that the bell curve of the, the narrative arc of a show, especially one that's self-contained, is such a relief from the open-endedness of COVID and the fact that there are one wave after another after another, right? So that it's like it, the, the, the lack of closure and the not knowing if this is going to be the end or not, right? That can kind of be ameliorated by this narrative experience where you can expect some kind of resolution. And if it's a sitcom, um, and I, I prefer the single camera sitcoms, but if it's a sitcom, it will give me that or some version of that that will make me feel happy for a moment and that I can share with my my partner as opposed to the horror, which is the other form of relief. Yeah, I think I have, uh, this is Josie again, uh, I again have something of an opposite experience to what's being described here, where I have really no middle ground between drag queens and serial killers, basically, (laughs) that those are the two things that I seem to be responding to. Uh, or or zombies being massacred in droves or some form of a very dark and cathartic uh, horror really is the other place that I tend to go. I think especially earlier during lockdown, earlier, I think uh, before the election especially, that I just, the way to sort of feel or experience something was to get at some of those those darker human impulses, I suppose. Yael, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add one last point because you mentioned laughter. And I think that in terms of soundscape, the aesthetics of sound, I also wanted to kind of throw in the mix the example of sports shows that had to add uh, audience voices and noises and kind of the cardboard images or screens of of viewers shouting and and chanting for for their favorite teams. And I think that's also indicative of the fact that the formal experience is is a very big part of the of the medium, how it sounds and and how it and the way that it looks like. And it's it's very much a part of the experience in terms of the aesthetics of the frame and in terms of of constructing a, a community. Of, of fans or viewers. And uh, so I think that this kind of fake addition of the, of the crowds is also an indicator of, of the way that aesthetics and form are so much, not only a part of the experience, but also kind of say something about how it works. Thank you. Yael, I want to come back to something that you were talking about earlier, and that is the awards show, in part because we haven't explicitly used words so far like taste and judgment, probably because they feel old-fashioned to us. But if we did want to talk about taste and judgment in some complicated and qualified way, the award show would be a good place to land because they're predicated on a certain logic of taste and judgment. So I want to ask you whether we should pay attention to them or not, what we want to teach our students about the logic of the awards show, how we understand their inclusions and exclusions, and what were miffed didn't get nominated for things in the last year. I, I see these as actually two very different things. I, I see that the world of award shows and the world of taste and judgment are totally different animals. Um, award shows tend to be about industry, PR, and self-aggrandizement, et cetera. And you know, taste and judgment is, I think, something 
uh, altogether. I, I don't care about award shows. I actually don't watch them because I don't like them. Um, but because that's my taste um, and, and judgment. I'd say, you know, for me, I think that there's a lot to talk about in terms of taste and judgment in terms of television and thinking through how it is. Like I said earlier, I'm interested in pleasure and practices. And I think that for media and popular culture, that is always suffused with taste and judgment. We watch and consume usually what we like and we uh, are gravitating toward experiences that further the pleasures that that we seek out and then i think we cultivate a certain taste for certain things and not for other things so you know i don't have a taste for award shows for instance um and i think that the ways in which those tastes are cultivated and then culturated and circulate is is very interesting and there's a lot to talk about in that regard so for me that that's where the the it becomes interesting is about the practice of taste this is Elena. I would say the same. Um, I like some awards shows because I think that they're entertaining television programs. Um, I don't really care at all about who wins them or who's nominated. As a matter of fact, I'm always sort of confused on the days when nominations come out and people on social media are spending a lot of time talking about that because I just don't pay attention to it. And then I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't care about that. And then I, <laughs> but I, I watch a fair number of. I mean, I watch the Oscars and the Emmys and the Globes. And I mean, come on, I don't watch music ones, but um, just because they're good TV shows, like I enjoy watching them on TV. And that's part of what's been so painful this year is that they're not very good TV shows. And the Globes, especially one of my favorite things about the Globes, well, one, because it brings the worlds of television and film together. But also that, I mean, it's always such a hoot how they make the TV people sit in the back and how they get confused now that like there's movie stars on TV shows and no one knows where to seat anybody. And like all that was just, and of course the Globes is also enjoyable because everybody gets drunk and you never know what they're going to say. And none of that was, it was like the Globes was the biggest disappointment of my award shows, COVID award show experiences for sure. I think I'm coming from the opposite end of that. I love award shows, uh, the way that they're usually choreographed and orchestrated, and it's just the spectacle of the glitterati and um, the stars. And I, I, I like, I sometimes like the pre-show better than the actual award show because I get to see what they're talking about with their costumes and who's, you know, who's who showed up with whom. So I like that that just that visual spectacle of glamour, right? And I, I, I sort of put on my fan hat and put my criticism aside so I can enjoy that moment. But the way that they were presented this year with all of the social distancing made me really glad that I have a DVR and that I could just fast forward all of the stuff that they thought was amusing or touching and just go straight from the announced straight to the announcements and the, the winners. Um, and then sometimes even fast forward their acceptance speeches. So I kind of, it almost felt like it, it marked the moment because there's so many things that are compromised. And this was one of the things that I usually enjoy more, but that was compromised during this year. But it was just a little bit, right? Just a little bit of, of pleasure, as opposed to the bigger pleasure that it often is. Jason, you said with the helpful qualifier a minute ago that we usually watch what we like. <laughs> and I wonder if anyone's doing any particularly visceral hate viewing at the moment. <laughs> I have too much hate in the other parts of my life to, to use TV. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got time for that. I wouldn't say that it, this is Josie. I wouldn't say that that it is hate viewing, but there are certain categories of watching I think that are that they're they're constructed so that you can feel better about yourself. 
I think. Um, uh, the, I'm thinking of something like, oh, this is something that I rewatched earlier was Teen Mom, actually, which just however badly things are going in your life, you always at least feel a little bit better about your decisions <laughs> um, in a way that, you know, has a lot of there's a lot of politics embedded in that. And I think that might also be a really interesting example to think about aesthetics, because it's like a very specific kind of working class or lower middle class representation that you don't see in a lot of other places. And it is very much not framed as aspirational in that show. Right. Um, or, or also something like, like 90 day fiance. I, I really don't usually watch that much reality TV. This is a little surprising for me to hear myself, which is another interesting case where it seems like it's just very much about people being taken advantage of. And I think that there's a really important social role there for people to think about like, what are the boundaries of a relationship? How should people act in relation to each other? Um, but that's perhaps a bit of a tangent from what we're discussing. I guess you don't have a lot of hate watchers here. <laughs> kind of just to tie in some of the things that we talked about, I think I agree with what Elena and Isabel said about the award shows that they're an interesting text in and of themselves as kind of this glamorous uh, event and not as important in terms of, of the way that they kind of try to legitimate certain texts over others. And I don't think they have the same kind of cultural uh, part that they used to, especially since more and more people realize how biased they are, specifically in terms of race and gender. But um, in terms of hate, I don't know if it's hate watching, but it really was kind of depressing watching them this year because of the, the exact reasons that they lacked this glamorous effect and they kept on incorporating the the domestic or the non-glamorous people wearing sweats at home and 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 in pajamas accepting awards which I guess is is resistant in its own ways to the the demands of gender performance or of of star performance but I think it kind of went against the thing that we look for in these very starry-eyed events that we like, how they're campy and how they're entertaining and colorful. So it was, I, I wanted to watch it to kind of be in the conversation, but it, it was it was kind of depressing. It kept on reminding me how it can't be the way that it used to. It can't be this colorful, exciting event. I want to bring up a genre that we haven't touched on yet, but that I think would be worth our collective attention. And I don't, think of myself as a hate viewer either, by the way, so maybe it was an unfair question. But I do watch with definite ambivalence and probably masochism a great deal of procedural television, particularly those series with an emphasis on criminal slash murder investigations. And part of my attraction to the avalanche of them, as you all know, that we get through Netflix now is that they're so much more formally interesting and beautiful than they used to be. But of course, the rotten core of their politics is almost always unchanged. I would say unbelievable might be an exception that proves that rule. So I'm wondering what we think about not simply the aesthetic question of watching such television in this moment, but also how we reckon with watching it if we do watch it in a time that we're paying attention necessarily and urgently to police violence. Can I ask a question, Nick? Are you talking about like scripted procedural dramas or are you talking about like the, the murder docs kind of thing? I watch a lot of both, and I'd be happy to hear people's thoughts about both. <laughs> Although I think my my inclination is to go to broody, atmospheric, Icelandic detective fiction than to the latest serial killer documentary. 
This is Josie. One thing that I've I've found is that I so I, I share a similar interest, and I I do think it is especially complicated right now. You know, you cannot. I mean, not that you ever could, but you can't sort of simply just root for justice to be done, right? Um, one possible workaround I've found is is that I feel less, uh, you know, more distanced, I suppose, by uh, to shows that are about the criminal justice system in another country that is not the one that I live in, which is not as freighted by the specific sorts of uh, political tensions of the country I live in. So British. Uh, shows I think I tend to enjoy a lot more for that reason. Happy Valley, I thought, was a really a great example where it's also, it's both British so distance, but it's also very much about even within the structure of the criminal justice system, how the main character has to go outside of that system in order to get justice for, I believe it's her daughter at the same time. So there are it's quite clearly not a sort of simple or uncomplicated pleasure, but I think in some of the ways that we've been talking about the politics of pleasure, that there are, there are still ways to work within that, or ways to distance ourselves from some of the more repellent elements. Although I, I haven't been watching as much of that recently, I will say not in the past year or so. I have a similar take. I, I I don't watch the American procedurals, but I watch some of the British ones and a lot of the Scandinavian ones. And I think part of what I like is the the structure of feeling is very different. It's much more uh, the, the the color tone tends to be darker, sort of more earth tones, and it's not as overly dramatic. But they do deal with trauma in a fairly effective way. So I find it uh, realistic in that way. Um, and for the American version, I did really like the Golden State Killer true crime doc because he was, he was caught, uh, because it wasn't an open-ended text, um, because, you know, he, he is now reduced to, you know, reduced to paying for his crimes. We're approaching a moment that I'll have to begin wrapping things up. And since that was a heavy question, I'd like the last one to be light for our poor listeners. And that is just to ask you, what sticks out in your mind indelibly as the silliest or goofiest thing that's happened in television because of the pandemic? I suppose it depends on, it depends on how we're defining television, but I'm, I'm thinking about some of these live Zoom events that have happened uh, for example, I watched the uh, reading in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was probably back in the fall, which was a, just a really very strange sort of experience. I have a candidate. Um, the German ad for watching binge watching television as a form of civic duty or sacrifice for one's country. I think that was, for me, the silly moment that I got to enjoy the most. I think maybe as a whole, shows that didn't have any choice but to use uh, Zoom screens within their shows, kind of the screens within screens that inevitably had technical issues with people muting themselves or adding unnecessary filters. I'm guessing all, we, we, we saw many instances of those that kind of break the the seriousness that the show kind of tries to portray itself with and i i, th I think we kind of gotten used to them i mean the i am not a cat guy if you count that as <laughs> television i mean that's definitely the, the first thing that comes thing to mind in a year um so you know but obviously like 
that's so real that it doesn't actually, it's not actually part of television. Um, I'm sure there's been some goofy moments on, you know, live news broadcasts and such where there's been people commenting from their homes, but I don't, can't think of any that I've seen off the top of my head. I think for me, and trying to think of an example, I, I don't have anything goofy, but I, I would say that the positive television that, that I can remember in terms of like having a sort of upbeatness is the Parks and Rec reunion episode, which sat, like thinking about it, I, I can't remember when it was. It feels like it was three years ago at this point, but my guess is it probably wasn't. Um, <laughs> but what, what I loved about it was how un good it was in a lot of ways like you know like it was shaggy <laughs> and it was so much was just a reminder of i just love these characters and these actors and want to spend time with them and we're all isolated and lonely and it felt you know that just sort of getting together hanging out with old friends feel but also completely awkward and distanced and weird because everything was at that point. So I think that for me was the one. I have no desire to watch it again, but it was it was a really pleasurable experience. And also just because that's a show that my entire family watches and, and loves. So it was a way that we could actually watch it physically together and have that experience. I mean, except for the news, which you know, I couldn't turn away from for a lot of the year and was incredibly stressful and painful a lot of the time. I think television has been more comforting and pleasurable than uncomfortable or weird or stupid or anything to me. I mean, and that's obviously selective. We have a lot of power to choose what we what we watch. And that has been my experience. Well, that emphasis on comfort may make for a comforting segue <laughs> Into wrapping up, I really want to thank you all for speaking to these important issues. So once again, Isabel Pinedo, Jason Mattel, Yael Levy, Elena Levine, and Josie Torres-Barth, thank you for your willingness to chat today. I also want to thank the co-organizers of this podcast series, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves, and on behalf of those co-organizers, to thank all our sponsors, SCMS, Media the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies and the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Many kudos also go out to Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all of their help with recording and Todd Thompson for providing music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be on the topic of publics. During the time of the pandemic, when many of us have been cooped up in our private spaces, likely spending more time watching TV or online, what sorts of publics has TV created? How have such TV publics both connected and disconnected us, particularly in these times of media bubbles, and with what effects? What's the impact of widespread racial violence on the development of publics and their televisual mediation across material and social locations? How have publics, as manifested through fandoms, both televisual and political fandoms, wielded power, yet also been the site of scrutiny and critique. How should we best approach fan publics during this period? We are very much interested in hearing your thoughts about these topics and what you think are the most important and interesting issues surrounding televisual publics. So please send in questions and thoughts via email, talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, on Twitter with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, or at Facebook, join the ACA Media Facebook group and then post questions. 
I'm Nick Salvato with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, and thanks so much for listening. Please be well, stay healthy, wear a mask, and if you can, sign up for a vaccine.